Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Helena. And I'm Tom. Okay, Tom, so I actually have no idea who we're featuring this week, but you know. So tell me, what's today's episode all about? Okay, we've got a pretty special one this week. In honour of World Ocean Day, which is today by the way, we have an episode that was guest produced by Jake Edmiston, a science communicator for the Marine Systems and Policies MSc, right here at the university. He spoke to Tom Grove, a marine conservationist and PhD student who's part of the Changing Oceans Research Group at the university. His work involves using drones to try and measure the ecological impacts of whale watching tourism and how much this affects stress levels in the whales themselves. So what you're saying is, I'm in for a whaley good time? (sighs) Yeah, yeah, you could say that. (laughs) (laughs) Before we start... This podcast is sponsored by GrinoBio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Not Another Science podcast celebrating World Oceans Day 2021. I'm your guest host, Jake, and today I'm delighted to say that we're going to be traveling to the magnificent, but if not slightly chilly waters of Iceland to talk about everything whales. I'm joined by the awesome Tom Grove, a PhD student in the Changing Oceans Research Lab here at the University of Edinburgh. Not only is Tom from the country of Wales himself, but he is also conducting pioneering research, trying to unlock the hidden world of these awesome creatures and find out how us humans could now be influencing their behaviour. Tom, how's it going? Yeah, really well, thanks. Oh my God, you're such a pro with your oh, voice. It's so like, professional. <laughs> really impressed. <laughs> how are you planning on celebrating World Oceans Day? Well, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm like really bad at all these days and stuff. So uh, I had to look at what day World Oceans Day was. And it's June the 8th. So by June the 8th, we'll have just sent one of our team in a van from the UK making their way towards Iceland, so travelling across Europe, and we'll be about to fly to Iceland in two days. So I'm sure we're going to be like a total massive stressful on June the 8th, to be honest. But I want to go for a good swim in the sea, so in Edinburgh I'm about like half an hour's walk from Portobello, the nearest beach, and fingers crossed there's a side whale in the fourth at the moment, and we've seen it once, and I'm hoping to see it again before we go. So hopefully on June the 8th or something, that'll be good. Amazing. There's a sign well in the Firth of Forth, is that? Yeah, yeah. So oh, certainly not within the last 10 years, I don't think they've seen a sign well here. You typically find them in much deeper waters out in the Atlantic or in any ocean basin, really. But yeah, there's been one in the Forth for the last month. And it's actually, it seems to be doing okay, touch wood. It doesn't seem to be sort of like, well, it's not stranding at all. It doesn't seem malnourished. It seems to be feeding. They've seen it in pretty shallow waters quite a lot of the time, but it seems to be genuinely there as like a feeding attempt as opposed to it being in danger. Yeah, and just everyone's really loving it at the moment. Amazing. Well, that's a tourism draw. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So coming from South Wales and the Gower Peninsula, which is an awesome part of the world, what catalyzed your interest in Wales? And how did you end up studying whales in Iceland? Yeah, that's a pretty good question. So back in Gower, we didn't really have access to big whales, so I made do with the smaller cetaceans instead. So I was really lucky that actually my family had a speedboat, so we'd go out and watch the common dolphins in the summer. So they've started coming to Gower in the last couple of decades. 
um, and also plenty of Harbour Port Hoist as well. So South Wales is actually is pretty good for Harbour Port Hoist all year round, but especially good in winter, actually, which is really interesting. So yeah, I've kind of grown up watching cetaceans. I've been really lucky with that. I will say my big passion is like the big whales. I don't really know what catalyzed that, to be honest, because I kind of love them since I can remember, so it's hard to know what first started it off. I mean, they're kind of big and mysterious and quite spiritual. I'm definitely quite like a hippy-dippy whale researcher. I find all these encounters like really spiritual. I don't even know what that means, to be honest, but... Of course, yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. I mean, when you've got something so massive, you know, and so beautifully adapted for its environment, I mean, there's definitely something spiritual about that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Iceland then. So how would you describe the relationship historically between the Icelanders community and Wales? Yeah, I definitely say an interesting one. I'm probably going to try and be quite balanced here. So I guess the first thing with Iceland that's quite interesting is they have a very long recorded history with the Wales. So the Vikings... Um, sort of made it twice and got over a millennium ago now and we've been there ever since and they actually kept a very good record of which whales were killed so they essentially had the king's law that was sort of a prevalent in Iceland and it was part of like the Danish kingdom and it was basically a set of laws which amongst other things governed who took a whale when it was killed so who did that whale belong to and basically, it partly belonged to the people who speared the whale. So they'd spear them in those days. They didn't have a harpoon with a line. They'd just spear the whale and then hope that it would strand somewhere on the Icelandic shore. And it would part belong to the person who found it and part belong to the person who speared it. So they've got actually a pretty good history of which whales they caught. And therefore, they've got a good history of which species of whales they were seeing around Iceland. So I'd say they've got a close relationship with whales in that sense. Obviously, they do still hunt them, or at least they still have the quota to hunt them. Um, so I would say that compared to, for example, in the UK, they maybe have a bit more of a utilitarian approach because you know they do eat them. But it's, it's really interesting, actually. Over the last couple of years, we've got to talk a lot more with maybe some of the more demonized groups of people in Iceland. So just like chatting with fishermen, you can chat with a couple of whalers. And it's surprising how much kind of love they actually have for whales as well i mean they still like going out and seeing them they still like seeing them breach they still find it quite a special experience sometimes but they do also eat them and part of me is like originally i think part of me is like i definitely don't really get what you're on about mate but at the end of the day uh before i turned vegetarian i liked seeing lambs in the fields and i would eat lamb and unless I sort of arbitrarily put a greater value on a whale than a lamb, I can't really argue against the value that they put on whales and white to that extent. Sorry, I realise that's a really rambling answer. But they, I'd say they have a close relationship, and I'd say it's very different to the relationship that we're used to in the UK in modern times. No, yeah. Would you say that the going back to the spirituality sort of point there's a certain level of spirituality between the coastal communities of Iceland and Wales or um I to be honest I I probably couldn't speak on their behalf to answer that I think going back a few hundred years ago I think that might have been more obvious when Wales were really part of folklore there and it's fantastic when you see some of the old maps from hundreds of years ago kind of the the depictions that they have of the whales making them look like these great beasts and they they'd actually split them into the good 
and the bad whale. So, for example, killer whales were a bad whale. I think fin whale and humpback whale. I think they were good whales. And but it really was like part of their folklore, part of their legends. And now I'd say that's probably not so prevalent. But I haven't lived in Iceland as an Icelandic person, so yeah. Of course, of course, fascinating. So up in Iceland, then, do you get the big whales that you're interested in? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's pretty much why I'm there. Well, it's for two reasons. One, there are whales, and two, there's whale watching. And yeah, <laughs> I suppose we'll go on to that later, but that's the topic of my research. So yeah, in Icelandic waters, actually, most of the large baleen whale species that you see in the North Atlantic, you're going to be able to see in Iceland. So around the coast of Iceland, you're most likely to see humpback whales, and minke whales, so minke whales are still hunted, humpback whales are not. There's also a good chance in the north of Iceland in June and July that you'll see blue whales, so woo, largest animal on the planet, blah blah blah. <laughs> they are not hunted. Uh, you can also see fin whales if you're really lucky, although they tend to be further out to sea. There is still a quota to hunt them, but again for the minkies and fins, they haven't hunted them for a few years. And then you've also got some, I guess, vagrants you could call them. So you might see a right whale if you're really lucky bowhead whale and those so those are the baying whales and then in terms of the tufted whales sperm whales you have a good chance of seeing them on the west coast in summer months killer whales if we're going to call a sperm whale a whale and humpback whale a whale then we should call all the dolphins whales as well so killer whales you can see i'd say they're still pretty big and then if you're quite lucky you can see northern bottomless whales which are really weird so there are species of beaked whales, very deep diving, very offshore, enigmatic, don't know much about them. But yeah, now and again, they'll come into slightly shallower waters and you get a chance to see them too. So they're about nine to 10 meters long. So not as big as like a humpback or a blue, but still pretty hefty. Wow. I mean, that sounds like the place to be studying whales then. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's, I suppose it's quite nice as a researcher because whilst there's, I mean, there's some fantastic research going on to be fair. So we're working with the University of Iceland up on the North Coast and they're doing some great research, but there are also so many large research gaps and I think part of the reason for that is that a lot of these whale populations are rebounding, right? So in the North Atlantic, whaling was banned back in the 1950s, and then whales have made a comeback since then. So humpback whales and fin whales in particular in the North Atlantic, but even blue whales have made a comeback to a certain extent. Minkies not really because they were never hunted that much back in the whaling era. But this means that now we have much larger whale populations than we did when whale research started in Iceland. So this means that it's hard to keep up with all the gaps in whale research as more and more whales appear around the Icelandic coast. So actually in Iceland, it's a really exciting time to be a researcher. Yeah, awesome. So would you say there's been a shift in the last couple of years towards tourism and then whale tourism? Mm, yeah, so yeah, e um, they call it ecotourism, but certainly whale watching tourism has grown hugely in Iceland over the last couple of decades. So the first whale watching tour was actually back in 1995 down in the south and southeast. But yeah, now it's expanded to in particular the north of Iceland, but also the west of Iceland as well. Yeah, and it's really, well, kind of growing almost exponentially, to be honest. I've got to put a little disclaimer in there because obviously COVID has kind of screwed all of that up right now. Um, but certainly up until 2019, everything was increasing a lot. And yeah, in terms of impacts, so one of the issues with Iceland is that with regards to whale watching, there's not a huge amount of regulation. 
So there's a voluntary code of conduct, and it's set up by Ice Whale, which was actually originally a consortium of whale watching companies. And it gives you sort of like standard regulations about how close you can go to the whales, how many boats there can be, how long an encounter can last. But it's inherently voluntary. It's not sort of a legally binding regulations. So if you break it, nothing's really going to happen to you. So the result of this is that often there is quite intense and unregulated whale watching going on in Iceland. So you can have lots of boats around a whale. The boats can be approaching quite quickly to the whales and you can have these really prolonged encounters and it's just not really monitored to any great extent. And the reason that that's important is because boats do affect whales. Now, there have actually been quite a few studies now in lots, well, right across the world, looking at the impact of whale watching vessels on whales. Now, the results very much depend on the location, on the species, on any hundreds of factors that are going on, whether it's weather, the type of boat, the speed of boat. Um, but generally, there are some patterns that we can see. So if we're focusing on baling whales, like humpback whales, what we can say is that whale-watching boats can disrupt feeding activity. We can say that boats can disrupt uh, feeding activity, boats can disrupt resting activity, boats can make whales dive for longer, they can make whales shift from whatever they're doing to traveling, they can make whales travel quicker. Conversely, sometimes they don't have that effect on whales. So humpback whales are known to be the curious whale. So sometimes you'll have 10 boats coming up to a humpback and they'll just be there checking them out, chilled as you like. So it depends on the personality of the whale. And I think this is something that within whale research we haven't really got to grasp with yet, just because it's a really difficult thing to disentangle, that individual effect of each whale on its response to whale watching encounters. You can't treat the population as uniform. There are also, well, there are plenty of other gaps that we don't really know yet. So firstly, we don't know the physiological impacts of whale watching encounters on whales. So we know that whales respond behaviorally, and behavior can sometimes be used as a proxy for, for example, physiological stress, but not always. So that's something we haven't directly monitored. There's also very little information about the long-term population level impacts of whale watching boats on a whale. So you can look at an encounter and you can say, right, this boat has affected this whale in this way. But it's very difficult to extrapolate from there and say, right, this is the average effect on a whale in the population. This is how long the average whale is exposed to whale watching in the population. And this is the average effect on population processes such as growth such as mortality, such as reproductive rates. That's really difficult information to obtain. The only study that's, well, there are two studies that have come pretty close. One was in Australia, looking at often those dolphins in a place called Shark Bay. And basically they showed that as the number of uh, dolphin watching boats increased, there was a decrease, a decline in the abundance of dolphins in that area. Whereas in an adjacent control area, abundance did not decline. And then the other study that was like, really interesting, actually, was looking at minke whales in Iceland. So in Faxaflói Bay, so where Reykjavik is. And basically what it showed was whale-watching boats disrupt feeding activities of minke whales and also make them travel a bit quicker. But because you have low cumulative exposure of each animal in the population to whale-watching, it means that you don't have population-level consequences for, in the case of this study, fetal growth rates in pregnant minke whales. So those are the only two studies that have really looked at long-term impacts. But that's it. That's all we know. And that's basically nothing. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so it's super interesting. So how in your research are you trying to quantify 
this stress response in these whales. I mean, no one's tried to do that before, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends on the timescale that you're looking at. When it comes to whale watching activities, no, no one has successfully done that. And no one has tried to do that as far as I'm aware. But this is all, this whole stress response boats research is all based off this really exciting paper that was published in 2012 by Rosalind Rowland and colleagues from the East Coast of the US. And basically, they were doing a study to look at the concentration of stress-related hormones in fecal samples in North Atlantic right whales. So this is important because it's a critically endangered population subject to uh, high cumulative anthropogenic stresses. And they happened to be looking at collecting these fecal samples, and then 9-11 happened. Now, when 9-11 happened, there was this massive closure of international borders along the eastern seaboard obviously, and that led to a massive decline in large vessel traffic in this area. But the research boat was allowed to continue going out, and they were collecting these fecal samples. And then after a time, once 9-11 had passed and a couple of weeks had gone by, vessel traffic increased again, and they were able to keep collecting these fecal samples. And what they showed, and it was actually a pretty strong response, to be honest, with these right whales, was when vessel traffic decreased, you had a decrease in stress-related hormone levels, particularly cortisol. And then when traffic increased, again, you had an increase, again, of these stress-related hormone levels. So that's really what sparked this research off. And that's, to a certain extent, is what we're trying to replicate with our whale-watching studies. The problem is, is that we can't look over that sort of time period, over the period of days to weeks. We want to know how is a whale responding to whale-watching boats within a single encounter. So a matter of only a couple of hours prolonged whale watching encounter. For that, fecal samples aren't going to work, particularly for us, because um, humpback whales don't really poo that much at the surface, or you don't see that much in Iceland, to be honest. So we need to find another way. So the sample that we're using is a blow sample. So basically a whale's breath mixed with a load of seawater. So what we use is we use a drone, we put a couple of Petri dishes on the drone, and then we fly it over the whale and time it to fly through the whale's breath just as it's surfacing. Your drone gets soaked, it's a nightmare for the drone, it doesn't like salt water, but you get some blow in your Petri dish. And then from each of these samples, you can measure the concentration of stress-related hormones. Now, the hormone that we're particularly interested in is cortisol, but we're actually scanning through a suite of up to 20 serotonins to basically see what we can find, because it's all quite new research. So anything new we can find in blow, any new hormones, that could be potentially useful for hormone research in the future when it comes to whales. So basically, our plan, we're kind of... Yeah, we've basically, in the last couple of years, we've been running a couple of trial studies. So basically seeing, can we collect these blow samples? What can we find in these blow samples? Is it suitable to then apply to our research question? And now this year, our plan is to collect samples before and after prolonged whale watching encounters and see if we get a change in these stress-related hormone levels. And what we're also doing, hopefully this is going to work, is we're basically collecting samples from four sites around Iceland. Two have very low vessel traffic and little to no whale watching, and two have much higher vessel traffic and much higher levels of whale watching. And what we would predict is that in these areas of low vessel traffic, you have lower, we'd probably say baseline levels of hormones like cortisol. And then in the areas with higher vessel traffic, you'd have higher levels of cortisol. So, yeah. Wow. Really fascinating stuff. So... 
just going back to how you actually collect these blow samples, because that is crazy. That's not been done before, right? Where did the idea for flying drones above these animals come from? Was it yourself? Yeah, so it, it's a very exciting idea, but it is by no means the first time that it's been done. So the best known project that runs this is actually called Snotbot. So this is run by Ocean Alliance, and they've been collecting these samples for many years, from right whales down in South America to blue whales off the coast of Mexico, even killer whales in Alaska, they managed to get some blow samples from them. So they're the ones who really pioneered it. And it's actually been used for a few different purposes now. So they've tried to look at hormones in blow samples. What I would say is that they have found hormones in samples collected with a long pole sticking out from the boat, because then you can have a much larger sampling device. But to our knowledge, they haven't yet published the discovery of hormones within samples caught by a drone. Hopefully we can do that. We'll see if that happens. I have no idea. I'm sure I will. <laughs> but then they often, they have also used drones to collect blow samples to then look at the microbiota. So basically the um, community of microbes that lives in whale lungs, which is really crazy. So I'm not entirely sure of the full range of things you can learn from that, but you can certainly relate it to like the health status of a whale. So I know the latest study that came out with that was in Australia. And basically they looked at the microbial diversity in these blow samples of migrating whales. And what they found was whales that were migrating to their breeding grounds were in better body condition because they've just finished feeding, they're going to be fat. They had higher microbial diversity than whales that were migrating from their breeding grounds to their feeding grounds. They were much skinnier and they had much lower microbial diversity. So I'm not an expert on that in any way. I'm sure it has some implications, but it's really interesting research. Mm. Yeah, amazing. So what are the whales around Iceland doing? Are all whales that go there doing the same thing? Yeah, so generally speaking, when it comes to large whales in Iceland, you have this very seasonal occurrence. So Iceland has far more whales in summer, and generally your large baleen whales, so your humpbacks, blues, fins, even your minke whales, they tend to migrate south in winter towards their breeding grounds, and then they'll migrate north in spring up to their Icelandic feeding grounds, and all across the North Atlantic, actually. So basically, they are taking advantage of the large summer plankton blooms or spring plankton blooms in Iceland, which then leads to large krill and fish stocks, and that's what the humpbacks feed on. So it's mostly for feeding, but typical of a humpback whale, they're a bit wacky, so you see them doing all sorts of stuff when you're watching them. So a lot of the time, yeah, they'll be feeding, or they'll just be lying there, resting, or they'll be playing, they'll be bridging and tail slapping and peck slapping and we don't really know what they're doing they're being a bit weird but they're having fun i guess <laughs> or in the winter you can even hear them singing so they've had a couple of long-term hydrophone deployments in actually the very bay that we work in skjolfandi bay and they've heard humpback whales singing in winter so you'd expect them to sing in winter but you'd expect that to be down in the Caribbean. So it's only the males that sing that we know of. And they think it's something to do with maybe mate competition. They're not entirely sure. So to hear it in Iceland, feeding ground in winter and not down in the Caribbean is really interesting. And it has implications for how exactly humpback whales are structured spatially and temporally. It means that we basically don't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So you must spend a lot of time just out on the water, just looking for these whales. 
And when you see one, I guess there's a hive of excitement and you're jumping to the drone, getting the drone ready to get it to fly over. Talk us through that process. What is the process of field work and going out and spending hours like just looking for whales? I mean, it sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess we're quite lucky in Iceland in that our field work is really diverse. So it depends what sort of like piece of work we're doing at the time. So let's say if we're doing behavioural observation, most of that will be from the whale watching boats themselves. It's a really cheap and effective platform for us to get out on the water and see these whales. The captains are pretty good and the guides are pretty good. They know where the whales are likely to be, so we don't usually need to wait that long for whales, maximum like an hour or something. And in the height of summer, there'll be plenty of humpbacks in the bay. It's pretty crazy, actually. If we're collecting blow samples, obviously we can't really do that with like 50 tourists around. So we need to go out on our own. So in Skjöldfandi Bay, so that's our um, primary field site, we've got a small research inflatable. Now, the good thing about Iceland is that it doesn't actually get dark in summer. So you can do this at any time you want. And actually, nighttime tends to be best because it's a lot calmer then. So typically, we go out at something like 7 or 8 p.m. as the whale watching is still there, but it's sort of like starting to die down a bit during the evening. We basically head out into the middle of the bay, look for whales. Usually, it doesn't really take us that long, to be honest, to find a whale, which we're very lucky. So you just look for the blow, hear a splash, look for a fluke. It's not too bad. Um, and then what we do is we want to make sure that we're not trying to sample whales that are A, sort of not behaving in a helpful way. So basically, if a whale is only coming up to the surface once before diving down, it's really hard to get your drone over there. Whereas, let's say for whales diving a bit longer, then when it comes to the surface, it's going to blow several times in a row. And that gives you the time when the whale's at the surface to get the drone in the right place and collect the sample. So we need to see how the whale's behaving. Also, if the whale seems stressed out in any way, we don't want to fly the drone because we don't want to cause any undue stress. I mean, especially like for whales breaching, I'm just like hit the drone out of the air. That wouldn't be ideal. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, we monitor their behavior for like 10 to 15 minutes and then we position the boat about two to 300 meters away. So we try not to get close because obviously there's a potential that our boat can have an impact on the whale, which we clearly don't want for research and ethical reasons. And then we get the drone up in the air. And usually there'll be one drone pilot and then two people watching. And they'll essentially, usually uh, the drone pilot will have like a towel over their head or something just to make sure they can see the screen really clearly. And then the other two people will be guiding them. So telling them where to go. And then they'll have like a camera on the drone so they can see roughly where the whale is. And then they can locate it, fly it through collect the sample, and then we basically store the samples at like sort of refrigerated temperature on the boat because we yeah, obviously want to keep the samples fresh. I guess your drone driving skills have got better then throughout this PhD. Or do you outsource the drone driving? <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good question. I've actually got an admission. I've never caught a blow sample. That's probably good for the whales because I probably wouldn't be very good at it. So I've collected some aerial images now, but I'm not actually an experienced drone pilot. And certainly for the first couple of years of the project, I really didn't want to be catching blow samples because I didn't have the experience. So in 2018, we had um, a very random, a wildlife filmmaker and a good friend called Mark Romanov helped come collect samples and he was amazing. And then in 2019, our friend Abigail Robinson she came over from New Zealand. She's actually like a biosecurity officer, but she's also an amazing drone pilot and she's done loads of whales, so she was great. But this year, so we've been doing some drone practice, and this year our plan is to basically spend all waking hours for the first couple of weeks 
making sure we can drone properly, and then we're going to go for it and collect a couple of samples ourselves. So hopefully I'll be collecting samples this summer, but only if we feel Amazing. that we're actually capable of doing that without sort of faffing around for too long, sort of disturbing the whales. Of course. So how do you stop the noise of the drone? Would the noise of the drone impact the whale at all? Or... Yeah, so there's actually been quite a good study on this. It's by Frederick Christensen, it was done in Australia, and they actually recorded the sound of the drone above water and below water to see just how loud it would be. That was a slightly um, larger drone, I think, the DJI Inspire. We used the DJI Phantom, which was a bit smaller, and they concluded that the noise impact was pretty minimal. Um, so whilst it is important to minimise disturbance, it's good to know that at least it shouldn't be too great. That said, so for the blow samples, we basically, we try and be as quick as possible because we're flying it low, fast through the blow. Once we've got the sample, we don't need to hang around. But we also collect aerial images from whales. So basically, if you look at a whale from above, you can see how fat it is and you can measure its body condition. And to do that, you need to be a bit slower, right? So you need to have the drone about 20 meters above the whale. Make sure you've got just the right angle so the whale's in the center and then you take your photo. And the whales 100% know that we're there. Because a lot of the time they'll turn around, give us a little look and then keep swimming on. They definitely know that we're there. Whether that's like a, I doubt it's a visual cue, probably an acoustic cue. And then this one time we did actually have a whale respond quite obviously negatively to the drone. So it was behaving pretty normal before and feeding. And then we got the drone up a couple of times actually on this whale and it seemed fine. And the third time we got it up, it suddenly started swimming very quickly, splash at the surface, dive down probably prematurely. And obviously we never sampled that whale again. And it was interesting because we hadn't actually done anything different than we had for the other whales. But I think it just highlights the importance of whale personality in making your decisions. So I think we might try and refine our method a bit more this year and try and further minimise the time we spend above the whale. Yeah, definitely. Do you find that different species of whales have different personalities? And if the whale is maybe new to the area, will it come closer to the boat? Do you know, it's really interesting when it comes to those investigative and like curious whales is it seems to be like this random trigger and no one really seems to be able to explain it. Um, so... Humpbacks generally in the bay are there to feed, and they generally either seem to ignore the boats or they kind of sail a little bit away from them. But every year, you'll have something like two or three or four, maybe even five whales that become really curious. And I say curious because often they'll just look at you. They will come on and fully look you in the eye, head out of the water, turning, looking very calm, and it just feels like they're watching you. And the reason I say become curious is because with a lot of these whales, they start off in the season not being curious. They'll just be feeding, minding their own business. And then maybe a couple of weeks after we first saw them, boom, they'll become curious. And then they'll suddenly start looking at you and suddenly start approaching the boat. And it's like, it doesn't seem to be like an like a, a continuum. It almost seems to be like a really flipping switch. There was actually this amazing whale called Decent where we had this incredible encounter with it when we were trying to catch a blow sample. And we'd seen Decent a couple of weeks before and Decent was not curious. Decent was feeding like a normal humpback whale. And then we saw Decent this one morning. Decent came right up to us in our little inflatable. It was probably like four times our length and was blowing bubbles and was splashing a bit and was just looking at us. It was the weirdest thing. And then it did that with the whale watching boats as well. And then Decent stopped being curious about a week after that. Intriguing. I mean, 
we haven't got any sort of like scientific evidence about this switch in curiosity. We haven't systematically documented it. Mm. Uh, but it's definitely something that people notice, and I have no idea why. It's really weird. Well, that's so interesting. Yeah. And then in terms of age groups, so Iceland's kind of weird in that we tend to have lots of fairly little humpback whales. So not like calves, but like adolescent humpbacks. You can tell they're not properly big adults because when an adult comes in, you're like, Jesus, it's huge. It's like so fat and long. Um, <laughs> there doesn't seem to be that much variation in behavior with age group as far as I can tell. But the one thing that we have noticed in the last few years is that we're seeing more bubble netting. So bubble netting is basically where a humpback whale creates this incredible bubble net, this sort of curtain of bubbles going in a circle, and that's used to trap fish or krill within the net because they won't pass through the bubbles, they are trapped in, and then the humpback can more easily feed. So I think the first time in Scalfandy Bay that they saw bubble netting was in 2017. I think they've seen it every year since, and every time they've seen a whale bubble netting, it's been big adults. It's never been an adolescent, which is really interesting. And sometimes what you actually see if you've got a mother and calf is that the mother will join up with another humpback, just seemingly a random whale, and then they'll bubble net together. And then you'll see the calf just kind of by the side, kind of watching, like maybe learning, hopefully learning. Yeah, figuring out what's going on. Yeah, it's really interesting, but never gets involved. So yeah, yeah, there are some interesting behaviors, right? So you must have seen some awesome stuff whilst you're out there. I mean, I've got the picture of you in these fjords of Iceland in this crazy setting, seeing these humpback whales breaching all over the place. Is there a memory that sticks out as that one time that you saw something incredible in Iceland or elsewhere when you've been working with whales in general? Yeah. Um, so I'd say in Iceland, there are two particular encounters that stand out. One was that encounter that I was just talking about with Decent because I've never had a properly curious humpback in Iceland like that before. And to be in such a small inflatable boat, and then this like giant humpback comes up right next to you and is full on checking you out and blowing bubbles at you. That was like a real privilege. And what was even more special from a research point of view is that we were trying to catch a blow sample. We totally lost it. We were screaming, freaking out, research out the window. We were like, <laughs> Jesus, what do we do? And kind of once we'd eventually settled down, we actually got out a couple of petri dishes. We didn't get the drone up in the air, but Disa was so close to the boat that we were actually just, I was able to sit out my hands, my arms, with the petri dishes, and Disa just blew into the petri dishes. True science. So that was really special. That was definitely our first hand-caught blow sample. <laughs> I'd say my other favourite encounter is just going to be a random one. So we were working with a Norwegian yacht called Barber, led by this great Norwegian man called Andreas in 2019. We were working with them to collect some blow samples. And I joined them one night and I was on night watch, so the others had gone to sleep. And it was this flat, calm night at about 1am and typical ice and sunset. It wasn't getting dark, it was just like this sort of never-ending sunset in the evening. And there was no wind, no waves. And there was just this one blue whale that was just circling the yacht. It was maybe got as close as like 100 metres or something. And then it slowly trundled its way out to sea further out. And just kind of experience it in such quiet, with no engines, no people talking, not even another sort of fully conscious human presence. And yet to be in the presence of that animal was just amazing. And because of the way that the mountains were positioned, so we were fairly near to the mountains, its blow was like echoing. So it's like, it's like almost like this calm, 
um, steam engine, but then you hear it sort of ricocheting off the mountainside as well. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That is so awesome. <laughs> what a great way to end. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. No worries, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. If you feel like you want to know more about Wales and keep up to date with Tom's research, check out his volunteer research group, Whalewise, on Instagram and at Live on Twitter. Thank you so much to Jake for producing the episode and to Tom Grove for being our guest in honour of World Ocean Day. You can find Tom on Instagram at WhaleWise and on Twitter at WhaleWiseLive. Jake is also on Twitter at JakeWEdmiston. And if you have an idea for a special episode, please do get in touch with us. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or a suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USI. You can also drop us an email at usi.podcast at gmail.com and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usi.org.uk. This episode was hosted by me, Tom Edwick, and my partner in crime, Helena Cornu. The podcast logo was designed by USI chief editor, Apple Chu, and awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama, and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop both by Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening, and until next time... Keep it salty! Come on, little fella! Come on! Dory, I'm a little fella. I don't think that's a little fella. Oh! Oh, oh, big fella! Big fella! Whale! Okay! Maybe he only speaks whale.